0: Now they did hear an engine of a boat approaching and signalled it and it approached shore but then opened up on them with small arms fire and this boat turned out to be a German ship. And welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave.
1: And me, Tony. And in this episode, we're looking at a parachute regiment commando escape, which is fabulous. We haven't done one for a little while, I don't think. No, it's been a little while, yeah. It has been a little while. Our individual today is Lieutenant Clifford Dennis Boito Buchanan.
0: Excellent name. Very strong.
1: It's a very strong name. It does actually go back quite a while. I had a look. He had many relatives who served in the military, so I think it was a fairly long-running thing, but several who were killed in the First World War, actually, so quite a long and an established family in the military. But let's have a look at Buchanan, shall we, because he's he's quite an interesting chap. He was born on the 13th of July, 1917, in Cobham in Surrey, and pre-war, he was a racehorse trainer. Okay. I don't know who for, so I don't know whether it was part of some massive stud or whether it was something local, but there wasn't, he didn't seem to race. I couldn't find anything about it, but there was uh, a lot of referencing to him training racehorses. But he did that up until December 1939 when he joined the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders.
0: Fine regiment. A fine
1: regiment. He'd been to Sandhurst at that point, actually, as well, when he'd gone into there. And I couldn't find an awful lot on what he'd actually done up until 1942 when he transfers to the Parachute Regiment. And that's quite an interesting time because he served with some very interesting people. Mm. But this is how he got himself into, into this certain predicament. So he was part of the 2nd Battalion and he was to jump into an area of Tunisia to try and capture some airfields. Now this is following Operation Torch. There was some reference on the internet to him being a part of Operation Torch, but Operation Torch was early November 1942. It was over by the 16th of November, and he was actually jumping on the 29th of November 1942. We'll do a quick little recap, I think, over Operation Torch. So Operation Torch was the Allied invasion of French North Africa. It was a bit of a compromise, really. Obviously, there was an awful lot going on in Libya and Egypt, over the Suez Canal, around Tobruk in particular. But this is obviously a lot further west in Tunisia. And the idea was to try and split the Germans and what limited resources they had up by jumping into Tunisia as a largely British operation, but actually alongside a number of American armed forces. And this actually gave the Americans an opportunity because it was, in fact, their first mass airborne assault carried out during the war. So effectively what it did is it allowed the US forces to go in alongside the British forces against Axis and Italian forces in particular who were rather stretched already and trying to basically have a battle on both fronts. It was a tricky situation out there because obviously it's a French colony and a number of the French colonies had aligned themselves with Germany via the Vichy uh, government and loyalties of the population were mixed, one could say. Eisenhower thought it was a pretty good idea. Launch three approaches into there: one in Casablanca, one in Oran, and one in Algiers, and then rapidly move on Tunis, basically, to try and catch the Africa Corps unexpected at the same time as loads of stuffs going on in Egypt and Libya. That's a very broad <laughs> oversight of what Operation Torch was. It was actually quite successful. The task force did encounter a fair amount of bad weather. And there was a short siege around the naval base that was there. But effectively, Oran surrendered after a bombardment by British ships. There was a fair amount of French resistance actually working on a coup in Algiers at the time. And effectively, the Eastern Task Force met a lot less opposition. So the Vichy forces surrendered at the end of the first day in certain areas. And now it was interesting because what it did do is it, It meant they had to actually put somebody in place there. And there was a guy called Admiral Francis Dallin, who was the commander of the Vichy forces in France. Now, he wasn't particularly popular on all sides. He was very much aligned with some of the access doctrine, shall we say. But they thought he would actually keep the peace a bit longer there afterwards. And they cut him a deal. Churchill wasn't particularly impressed with it. Eisenhower wasn't particularly impressed, but it was like the lesser of the two evils. As it was, the locals didn't particularly like him. Six weeks after the deal was cut, he was assassinated by one of the locals there anyway. And effectively, the Free French eventually became the government part of Tunisia. So that's essentially what happened in Operation Torch. Now, Buchanan's going in just afterwards. There was an airbase up in the sort of northeastern quadrant of Tunisia, and that's what he was intending to attack. Now, his escape report is not particularly useful. No, it's not. So I had to do quite a lot of research. So at, it, at least not
0: for his operation.
1: No, no. So he basically says, under capture, I was captured on the 2nd of December 1942 in Tunisia after a parachute operation. Not a lot to go on. Mm. Not a lot to go on. What had actually happened is this. I managed to get this from some of the regimental diaries. So the battalion's objective was to destroy enemy aircraft at this particular airbase and then link up with the first army that had been deployed down the road. Now Buchanan's platoon had actually landed some distance to the south, and as a result he was ordered to remain in that area, collect his missing section together, complete salvaging all of their equipment and everything else, and then guard any injured until the first army could come up and relieve him, and then he was supposed to go north and re-establish contact with the rest of the battalion and carry on with the mission. Unfortunately, the 1st Army was held up, one, with bad weather, and two, some unknown German tanks that kind of got in the way, which delayed them by 48 hours, which is obviously quite a lot when you're in a parachute brigade operating behind enemy lines, 60 miles behind enemy lines as it happened to be. So unfortunately, they were quite outnumbered, and the Sierra estimated at one point they were outnumbered roughly by four to one. They took up defensive positions around the village, but they were attacked by tank's of the 5th German Parachute Regiment. And after a short battle, they had to surrender to basically protect the wounded that they did have. And actually, the German commander in charge actually left them there to look after the, the wounded whilst he was going to try and chase up the rest of the battalion, which was actually being commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Frost. Okay. Now, he's a well-known individual for those with their Arnhem history. He is, yeah. There's a particularly good bridge named after him. And there's a wonderful film where he's actually played by, I think, Anthony Hopkins, isn't it?
0: Yes, A Bridge Too Far. Yes, it's a good film. uh, Excellent, yes.
1: (laughs) It does tell the story of Lieutenant Colonel Frost very well. Now, Frost and Buchanan were actually together in the same battalion. Okay. And Buchanan was serving underneath him. Now, Frost had obviously made up to go and do the the actual work on the airfield that Buchanan was supposed to be doing, the German commander was after trying to capture the rest of these parachuters, So he made chase to try and reach them, and Frost managed to evade, actually. He made it back, although it took another five days, he managed to make it back to the British and Allied uh, lines. But meanwhile, Buchanan was left with the wounded. Now, there's a little bit of deviation in the story here. So there are a number of people who have researched this and there's a number of people who have written up about this and then we've also got the report. Now, in his report, he says, I was taken to Tunis and interrogated by a German officer of the 1st German Parachute Division. From there, I was then flown on to Sicily and later to Naples. He mentions nothing about what went on post-capture. There is an account, and this would be very interesting, and I want to bring it up here because it doesn't make sense so this is an account of testimony of Lance Corporal Cadden, who was part of the 2nd Parachute Regiment and was a witness to this. This has not been corroborated anywhere else. I have not found anything. Now he says that after the German commander left and left Buchanan in charge of the wounded, another German officer arrived shortly afterwards and decided that the British parachutist should be executed. They were marched into a farmyard and were lined up against a wall with a machine gun placed just 10 yards away. Buchanan, as the senior in charge, steps forwards and asks the German officer for permission to shake hands with all the men. And as he shook hands with them, he said, Don't forget, when I step back into the ranks, give the Germans the V-sign and let the bastards know that we're not afraid. Now, when he stepped back into line, the men all gave the V-sign, which apparently caused the German officer to lose his temper and shouted at the machine gunner, to open fire on the commandos. Now it then says, fortunately for the British prisoners, the original German commander returned at this point and saw that an execution was about to take place and without waiting for his armored car to stop, stepped out with a running jump, kicked over the machine gun and pushed the gunner to one side whilst assaulting verbally his fellow officer by saying, you're not gonna shoot these individuals. Now this is the end of November 1942 And it sounds very much to me, the plausible side of this, that the deputy German officer in charge was carrying out what was then the initial commando order. That order having come out on the 18th of October 1942, so just a few weeks before. We've covered the commando order in detail before. We have. I will quickly run through it just here. So this Mm -hmm. is in retaliation to reports that the Germans had received about German prisoners being murdered whilst restrained and as prisoners of war. And Hitler gave an order which basically said, from now on, all men operating against the German troops in so-called commando raids in Europe or in Africa, important point, are to be annihilated to the last man. This is to be carried out whether they be soldiers in uniform or saboteurs with or without arms and whether fighting or seeking to escape. It is equally immaterial whether they have come from ships or aircraft or whether they land by parachute. Even if these individuals on discovery make obvious their intention of giving themselves up as prisoners, no pardon is on any account to be given. On this matter, a report is to be made on each case to headquarters. Now, that is interesting Mm. because that would be the second officer carrying out the duty. If you skip through the commando order, it does say, This order does not apply to any treatment of those enemy soldiers who are taken prisoner or give themselves up in open battle and in the normal course of operations, large-scale attacks or a major assault landings or airborne operations. Neither does it apply to those who fall into our hands after a sea fight nor to those enemies who, after air battle, seek to save their lives by parachute. Well, that's the only exclusion in this early commando order that these guys do not fall under. Mm. It was pretty serious if a German officer did not obey the commando order. Yes. But in this case, if this testimony of Lance Corporal Cadden is to be believed, the deputy German officer was looking to carry out the commando order, the senior officer stopped him. That rings strangely for me. Mm -hmm. But that has come from one of the official historians from Tupac. It does not come from our escape report. But I felt it was worth mentioning.
0: Yes, it would be interesting to know if anyone listening is aware of anything further, has any further information on that, perhaps are related to someone else Mm. who was in this group and was able to corroborate this story. It's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that a senior officer could countermand the order, could even have done it on the basis of executing the commando order at a later date...
1: Potentially. Could be, completely. And, I mean, the thing is, you've got the situation where the command order had come out some six weeks before. The first cases of the command order being carried out was one week later, mm. so there has already been things, but that was mostly around the operations in Norway, around the power stations there. We, again, we've documented the previous one, but it's very interesting that we've obviously got a deputy looking to carry out the order, stopped by a senior official. But as I will say, it's only as part of this one testimony I've not found it anywhere else. But Mm. that's conveniently left out the report. And as we say, within two sentences, he's summed up that he's been captured and he's been taken to Naples.
0: As you see, he does pretty quickly rattle through his initial capture, being taken from Tunis onto Sicily and then onto Naples. And from Naples, he was actually then sent onto Capua to Campo 66. Mm -hmm. Now, he wouldn't be there all that long before he'd make his first escape attempt, actually. Excellent. Yes, Less than a month, in fact, because on the 26th of December, on Boxing Day 1942, he actually managed to get out of Camp 66 with a Lieutenant Kier of the 1st Commando. So, Kier and Buchanan had sold off their watches and rings to the Italian guards and then returned for this and the further 20 gold coins which they had managed to retain from their escape purse. So, two points to note on that. First of all, this is one of the MI9 escape purses that were distributed to airmen, parachutists... Excellent. The yeah, yeah, commandos. Yeah, the works. Anyone going unlikely to be serving, certainly behind enemy lines and probably the front line as well. And secondly, well done to them for managing to retain this escape purse because it would, of course, have been...
1: Taken during a search,
0: potentially. Had it been found, yeah, exactly. So in return for their watches, their rings, and some of the money from their escape purse, they managed to receive Italian money. Now, they also managed to get themselves dressed as Italian soldiers, having obtained their clothing from a British OR, another rank, who was in charge of the Italian stores, who I imagine was a very helpful and convenient contact to have. Absolutely. He seems to be a man of few words, because all he says is, we got out through the main camp gate. Now, there is a certain degree to which we can read into that, Mm -hmm. because one way or another... It would have required someone to have either escorted them out the gate, so whether they managed to disguise themselves into a larger group that was legitimately going out the gate, escorted by a guard, or whether one of Keir or Buchanan were sufficiently proficient at Italian to be able to blag their way out of the gate. It is unclear. Mm -hmm. It says they're dressed as Italian soldiers, so you have to assume that they were blagging their way out. But one way or another, they managed to get out the main camp gate, which is actually quite impressive. It's pretty good going. Yeah, because you do need to be able to have sufficient command of an access language at the very least. Mm. Presumably Italian, given they were dressed as Italian soldiers, in order to blag your way out of it. I mean, I think it's hard enough in your native tongue to get out of prison. (laughs) uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Using your wits, but uh, to do it in a foreign language, it uh, does take a certain degree of smart, so fair play to Keir and Buchanan Mm. on this one. So, having managed to get out, he doesn't give too much details as to what he actually got up to once he was out of the camp, but he does state that they were recaptured and sent back to the camp the same night. So, he hasn't been out for long, but he has managed to get out. So, he, he's clearly got a little bit of a taste for this escape lark. Mm. So, having been recaptured and taken back to the camp, they were questioned by a Carabinieri officer as to how they had managed to obtain their money and clothes. They, of course, refused to tell him, so he stuck a revolver into Buchanan's stomach, and then into Kears and asked them again. He then hit them over the face and eye with the revolver, but they did not tell him anything further, nor did they receive any imprisonment for this escape attempt. Which is actually, again, dodging a bit of a bullet there, because the standard expectation for being recaptured upon escaping was, in fairness, a bit of time in, in solitary confinement. So to have even avoided that is actually... They got lucky here, let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah, I did. What information he does provide is he states that the medical officer at this camp did all he could to assist escapes. So he w- he was providing money and clothes where he could and even used the hospital to shelter would-be escapers. And Buchanan states in his escape report that to his knowledge, the medical officer managed to get seven prisoners out of the camp in this way, which again, fair play to the medical officer because taking you, your life into your own hands a little bit by assisting with escapes. But nonetheless, he managed to help seven get out of the camp. Returning to Buchanan, he he goes on to state that in January 1943 he was a member of a party under the leadership of Colonel Sterling of the SAS. Interesting. Who, of course, by this point was a prisoner of war, and this party was organised to try and sabotage a local aerodrome. However, Sterling was moved from the camp before this plan could be put into operation. Good to see Sterling getting up to his usual tricks even as a prisoner of war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, bit of corroboration there for at least that story. Indeed, um, indeed. By by Buchanan here. So moving on to his second and final escape attempt, on the 18th of March, 1943, he was moved to camp 21 at Kieti. Now he does say that there was an escape committee at this camp, but it was not all that active. and on the same day that he arrived, a party of prisoners of war under the direction of a captain Sudbury, started to dig a tunnel. Mm-hmm. By the 15th of September, 1943, this tunnel had gone a fair distance. Mm-hmm. now. The 15th of September is about a week after the armistice in Italy.
1: That's right, yes. And we
0: have discussed at length in other episodes precisely the meaning of the armistice and the impact it had upon prisoners of war and those prisoners of war in particular who wanted to escape. But as a brief recap, the armistice was signed early September and prisoners of war were basically ordered to remain in their camps. The theory being that by this point... The Allied forces were on the mainland of Italy and so any camps would be relieved and prisoners of war liberated as the armies moved north through Italy. However, there were two issues with this. The first is that not too many prisoners of war had any intention of remaining within the camp once the armistice had been signed. Not unreasonably, some of them had been in the bag for couple of years by this point and Absolutely. were only too keen to get out of the boundaries of the wire and head south towards the front line which while this was dangerous and foolhardy an understandable sentiment hmm. the second issue of course was that the germans had no intention of letting a whole bunch of prisoners of war return to the front line and return to fighting for that matter and as rapidly as they could would head south and try and occupy and guard as many prisoner war camps as possible So, it was a very febrile situation around sort of mid-September, early to mid-September in 1943. And so, on the 15th of September, after the Germans had occupied Camp 21 at k 80 Buchanan states that 11 of the prisoners of war went down the tunnel that they'd been digging, taking with them food and water. Now, they went down in the morning of the 15th, intending to come out at midnight that night, but at about five o'clock in the afternoon, they found that the other end of the tunnel had been discovered and filled in. So they came up again after about 36 hours and made their way to the north bank of the river Pescara, where they sheltered in a wood. Now, we have heard similar stories to this in other camps, whereby you stick a group of prisoners of war into a tunnel, they... Wait out for a couple of hours. I say a couple of hours quite often, a couple of days. Mm. I mean, even up to a week until the Germans have emptied the majority of the camp and moved them north up into Germany itself or the rest of occupied Europe. And then they just walk out. But to wait a week is challenging. It
1: Certainly. To for us. a load of men in a small tunnel.
0: With limited water and food. So 36 hours... Taking things into your own hands slightly, but nonetheless, they clearly managed to make it out of the camp and made their way north. Now, having reached this shelter next to the river Pescara, they managed to make contact with a friendly Italian who provided them with food and dried their clothes. And this Italian then took them to a Captain Lee of the SAS. Now, Lee gave them instructions to go to a mouth of a nearby river from where they were to be evacuated by a British ship. And the same Italian guided them to this river. Having reached the mouth of the river, they went down to the beach each night for three nights, but the ship did not arrive. And on the fourth night, Captain Lee himself arrived and went down to the beach again. Now, they did hear an engine of a boat approaching and signalled it. And it approached shore, but then opened up on them with small arms fire. And this boat turned out to be a German ship.
1: That's unfortunate.
0: Mm. Not really what you're hoping for when you're trying to find a British ship to evacuate you off the beach. So when the Germans opened fire on them, Captain Lee gave the order to disperse. And by this point, there were actually about 300 former prisoners of war collected on the beach. That's significant. Yeah, a significant number, yeah. Along with a couple of other former POWs, he went off towards a place called Tolo. And in this village, they found another 150 or so British former POWs. They also met an, a former Czech officer who spoke perfect German and Italian, who was able to provide them with clothes and food and arrange accommodation for them as well. And it's at this point that the party split up and went off one at a time. So Buchanan's now by himself, and he took the coastal road, keeping about three kilometres in from the coast and travelling by day only. He was in British parachute uniform, which is very similar to the German parachute uniform, and was armed with the German automatic. So to some extent, he was able to assimilate regardless of who he bumped into. If he came across a German, he would at least be passable in appearance, at least. Yeah, yeah.
1: As much as you can be.
0: As much as he can be, and you know, preferably in the dark, but not likely if he's travelling by day only. And equally, if he bumps into anyone British, he's able to pass himself off as a former prisoner of war, because that's precisely what he was. So he carried on until he reached San Vito, and there he told an Italian that he was an escaped British prisoner of war and asked them to help him get a meal. The Italian provided this for him, and while he was eating, an Italian woman came in and told him that some other British prisoners of war were outside and wanted to see Buchanan. Now, understandably, Buchanan was a bit wary and went out of the house and ran to the back to see who these people were, and he saw waiting for him several German cyclists, who fired a few shots at him, but he managed to get away. Sadly, not on one of their bikes, though. Ah,
1: no uh, bicycle thefts.
0: So having managed to evade his way out of this potential ambush, he managed to get himself some civilian clothes and some money from Captain Lee. And from there, he then headed on to Vasto, crossing the River Sangro by Ford, as there were sentries on the bridge. So, we are still talking about a very live front. And this Mm. goes back to what we were saying about why they were ordered to stay put. So, the whole point was, this was a live front. I mean, you were taking your life into your own hands if you were to leave the camp. At least in the camp, they had some safety, security, provisions, infrastructure, that sort of thing. Now, granted, Buchanan has made his own way out, but you can see it is very much still a live front here. And he is taking risks to try and return to the allied forces. So having crossed the river he then made his way to a small village nearby close to San Lorenzo. Now the Germans had made this area their supply ground but what this meant in effect is that they would go to a nearby farm and take away all the grain, poultry, pigs etc and then took away any civilian clothes except those that the inhabitants were wearing at the time. So, in in effect, the Germans, as much as they would describe it as a supply ground, they were effectively looting by this point. Mm. Nonetheless, Buchanan managed to make a little bit of a nuisance of himself. Because he says, while he was in this area, there was an RAF pamphlet drop. And while the Germans managed to collect many of these, because, of course, this was propaganda, so the Germans are trying to... Keep it out of civilian hands. Exactly. Yeah. Buchanan did manage to obtain some and took them round to the Italian farmers, telling them that when the Germans came to take their food and pigs, to hand them over to the Germans and ask them if they could read it for them, claiming that they didn't speak English and hopefully the Germans could translate it for them. Nice. It, it's not exactly sabotage, but mm-hmm. it is making a slight nuisance of himself, And certainly, I imagine Buchanan had a little bit of fun with this, oh, certainly. keeping himself entertained while on the run. Now, in an effort to try and collect up the prisoners of war that the Germans were fully aware were in the locality, the Germans had SS troops dressed up as civilians and would approach Italians in the street, saying that they were British prisoners of war and ask if they knew the whereabouts of any others, saying that they would like to be put in touch with them. Sneaky. It is a bit sneaky, yeah. Now, Buchanan does say that he's not aware that any prisoners of war were captured by this, but it is a bit of a underhand method. Yeah. So, we're now into early November. So, he's been on the run a couple of months by this stage. Yep. And on the night of the 4th of November, the Germans prepared to evacuate the area of Vasto and San Lorenzo. Before doing so, they turned out all the civilians out of the time, but later allowed the women to return. Now, this is where it gets quite amusing, actually, because Buchanan went back dressed as a woman to reconnoiter the area, looking for possible means of getting through. So, yeah. we now have... Yeah. Buchanan and drag.
1: This is is fine. It's not unheard of in prisoner
0: of war circles. No, indeed not. Borderline common. (laughs) (laughs) And what he did manage to find out is that it would be possible to get back into the area and make their way through. So he returned to some of the other prisoners of war in the area and told them that it could be done. On the 5th of November, the Germans then withdrew and British troops arrived. So... In effect, he, he hasn't really had to do anything. As much as he reconnoitered the area, he just had to wait for the Germans to withdraw and the Allied troops to turn up. So he's, he's kind of made contact with the Allied front line in a de facto manner rather than actively crossing no man's land and that yeah. sort of stuff he hasn't crossed the front line he's just waited for it to catch up with him but he has of course made his way through occupied italy mm-hmm. towards the front line so he's he's not been a passive escaper in this but equally when it came to the sort of final mile or something like that he's just kind of waited for it which is probably the smart move yes yeah, safest move exactly so having made contact with the allied front line he then went to the hq of the 78th division where he was interrogated by an intelligence officer on on military matters, because of course he has just walked for two months through the the front line. Mm -hmm. So I imagine he was able to give some detailed information on emplacement of gunnery, troop movements, names of men who were helpful, not helpful, all this sort of stuff. And following that interrogation, he was then sent to Barletta, where he rejoined his unit and was able to report back to his task force and even he was able to inform them of the whereabouts of further prisoners war at Tolo, where he'd been previously he was then sent to barry and then on to algiers before arriving back in liverpool on the 9th of december 1943
1: which is an excellent escape
0: yeah only only three months after he got out of camp
1: yeah no absolutely fantastic and we do actually have some stuff about what happened to him next so he was awarded the military cross for his bravery, both in Tunisia and also as part of his escaping. And that appeared in the Gazette in April 1944. Now, as you mentioned, he rejoined his his group, who were back in the UK at that time. But he was to return to action. On the 17th of September 1944, again under Lieutenant Commander Frost, he jumped with the 2nd Battalion into DZX as part of the airborne force tasked with taking the Arnhem Bridge in Operation Market Garden. Now, their route was to follow the river to reach Arnhem. They first reached Oosterbeek, where they were welcomed by Dutch citizens. Now, this was wonderful for the Dutch, less so for the Brits because it delayed them considerably. And because of this, the Germans ahead of them actually blew up the bridge that Frost was intending to cross. So that meant that they eventually got up to Arnhem, where they were ordered to hold the south and the north side of the famous bridge. Now, unfortunately... Reinforcements as we well know from Market Garden were not forthcoming and having jumped on the 17th and having arrived at around about 7.30 that evening they did make an attempt to cross the bridge but the Germans had already set up the defences on the southern side. They made another attempt at about 10 o'clock that night with no effect again and then eventually the Germans over the next couple of days surrounded them completely which meant that 600 men including Frost and Buchanan were then cut off from the rest of the airborne troops. Buchanan at that time was the battalion intelligence officer, so he was very much in the thick of the action. He used a lot of his interrogation work to keep up to date with enemy positions and things that were going on to Brigade HQ. They didn't realise that they were facing the 9th SS Panzer Division and other elements of the 2nd Panzer Division, so when this information came through, they realised they weren't up against the second-rate troops that they were led to believe that they would be. Major Lewis of C Company of the 3rd Parachute Battalion, We know well in the story we managed to reach them to try and bring some reinforcements in and it is documented that Buchanan actually met with him and managed to advise Major Lewis where to deploy platoons in the area. But the Germans consolidated their positions in Arnhem and slowly worked house to house to get to to the northern side where obviously these were held up. And on the 20th, the fighting was obviously massively intense. They were setting fire to buildings and shooting basically at point-back range at paratroopers with tanks. So it was a pretty horrible fight to be in. Frost was wounded. He was relieved of his command. At the end of the day, the Germans had eliminated all of the resistance at the top of the bridge. It sadly means that Buchanan was actually killed as part of that action on the 20th of September 1944. And he's buried out there in the used-to-be war cemetery to this day. So I think this is the first case. Once we've had escapers that have gone back into action and we've had a couple who have tragically been killed a few years after the war i think this is the first case we've had of a escaper who's actually escaped got back rejoined his unit but then has subsequently been killed in action sadly just a few weeks after his 27th birthday
0: mm, yeah as you say we've covered quite a few who've been killed post-war in various and of course several who've survived the war and gone on to live for decades yeah but i don't think we've covered too many that have been redeployed and ended up being killed in action again yeah um so which is a shame because of course you know he, he came from a long long tradition within his family of military service a long tradition of escapers with excellent names absolutely, uh, as well but and and it's it's you know fantastic escape he sort of escaped by tunnel it's it's an interesting one yeah um, and he was clearly Keen on escape and made previous attempts to escape. He was certainly determined, and you know, making your way south through what is a live front, you're taking your life into your own hands somewhat. So, and if there was any doubt about his bravery, they went on to fight in Narn, which a horrific Absolutely. battle to fight in. So yeah, it's a it's a pity that he didn't manage to survive the war, but he he certainly managed to fit a lot into his war, including a, an excellent escape.
1: Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms.
0: Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O.
1: Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at (laughs) gmail.com.